Well, there's lots of unmistakable signs that Christmas is almost here. Seeing college students that I haven't seen for a few months, that's got to be one of them. At our house, uh, you know, it kind of builds throughout Advent. It starts with a Christmas tree and decorating, putting up lights. Uh, the music in our house gets more and more festive as December continues on. Uh, I noticed that we purchase more eggnog than milk, you know, that's usual. Parties, uh, many parties are attended and hosted. School gets out. Uh, the front of our fridge, this might happen at your house too, it becomes more and more covered with, with pictures and photographs, Christmas cards, that's pretty cool. The inside of our fridge fills with more and more food. And then finally, the Christmas movies start to play. Uh, one of the phenomenas at our house, the final stage, I know that Christmas is nigh, because that's a cool word to use when we're singing hymns, right? Christmas is nigh. Uh, it's the Hallmark Channel right? Maybe this happens at your house too. And I discovered this week that the Hallmark Channel is one of the most watched cable entertainment networks each year, okay? And so I know there's different categories that they put this, but, but, but truly, Hallmark kind of punches above its weight. You know, there's like HGTV in that category. They're number one. Well, all year long, Hallmark is number two. And by the end of the year, because of the holiday film festival, right? Hallmark becomes number one. That's been the uh, last four or five years. They've, they've over, at least the last few years, they've overtaken them in that spot. And uh, 42 new holiday movies this year alone. How did they do that during a writer and screen actors guild strike? <laughs> right? I found out. They get waivers. They continued filming. That's how much people love a Hallmark movie, okay? You know, like, you can get rid of Netflix. I, I don't care uh, if the movie theaters close and have no new shows. That's not a big deal. But if there's no new Hallmark films, I mean, heads are going to roll. Evidently, America loves a feel-good Christmas romance. It's happy, uplifting, predictable, kind of almost the opposite of reality, right, during this time of year. So that's why I was a little concerned about my choice of topic for this week. We've been working our way through this Advent devotional by Ashrita Choo Choo. And, uh, you know, each, each week there's devotional readings that apply to different names of Jesus. And so much earlier this fall, I mean, a long time ago, I was kind of doing some advanced planning and I needed to pick out the names that we were going to actually preach on and kind of get them out to the various groups of people and um, staff and people that need to know. And so I was, I was going through the book, and I was looking at each week, and I was picking out names, and I got to this week, and there were, you know, stalwarts like, you know, the Lamb of God, uh, Emmanuel, the Good Shepherd. I mean, these are hallmark names, right? Easy, uplifting, predictable. And then on that, on that list, on the, on the table of contents, I saw the name Man of Sorrows. And I was like, huh, <laughs> what's that doing there, right? <laughs> that feels like that is, that is not Hallmark, all right? That is, that's not going to cut. But I actually left it blank. We have this little online document that people look at, and I'm like, I, I couldn't decide. So I left it blank, and then, you know, over the next few days, weeks, whatever, I, I, I thought, I need to fill in that blank. And whenever I would think of it, I would think of Man of Sorrows, so weird that that was there. 
So we had a planning meeting like six weeks ago, and we need to nail this down. And in the planning meeting, I didn't say anything. I said, I just need to pick a name for this, this week. Like, can you help me? And so there's a group of people there, and they're looking through this. And almost immediately, Phil Manili, who is there, he's like, you know, I, I don't know why, but I'm kind of drawn to the name Man of Sorrows. And I, I'm sitting there, I'm thinking, oh, no, please, don't, don't pick that. And then Matt Randall's like, almost immediately chimes in. He's like, yeah, me too. And I'm, I'm like, oh, man, that's the one that I kind of stood out to me. And I'm, I'm I, you know, I, I said something like, okay, I guess we'll do that. Actually, it was more like I've been trying to decide whether or not to dust off an old, you know, Christmas goodie like Emmanuel. I mean, I got dozens of those sermons, right? Or if I would, in fact, listen to the Holy Spirit and preach about the man of sorrows. I mean, it was, I wish I could say it was easier, but I finally gave in. I'm like, all right, this must be the Holy Spirit. Let's preach on the man of sorrows. And uh, the more I thought about it, as unexpected as it was to me, uh, the more I thought about it, you know, Christmas is a time when there's a lot of grief. There's a lot of pain, really, just kind of lurking in the shadows. And Jesus, in fact, is no stranger to this because he's the man of sorrows. And you might feel really happy and peaceful right now. I hope that you do, but you may not. And so I promise you that even in the midst of sorrow and pain, the most unexpected Savior can bring you unexpected hope, even joy this time of year. So the name Man of Sorrows, or in many translations, it's, it comes across as the Man of Suffering, it comes from a passage out of uh, Isaiah chapter 53. And this is a really, really important chapter in the Hebrew Bible. Towards the end of the book of Isaiah, there are many prophecies um, about how God plans to reconcile his people to himself. And in the process, he's going to reconcile the whole world to himself. And so there's, it's like Isaiah 40, and I think it's 49, and 52, and 53. There might be a couple others. I mean, these, these, these have a name, and they're called the suffering servant passages. And um, it's a plan that God's going to use or, to reconcile the whole world to himself, but it involves a very surprising means. He's going to send a deliverer. But this figure is going to be less like a mighty king and more like a suffering servant. It's kind of weird. So Isaiah 53 describes him. Verse 1. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot. And like a root out of dry ground, he had dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by others. A man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one whom people hid, hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Verse 4. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. 
Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So like I mentioned, this is a description of the person who's supposed to come and save the world. You know, aren't heroes supposed to be kind of impressive? And yet this description, I mean, there is nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. Thanks. A a person despised and rejected, the one pierced for our transgressions, who the Lord has laid the iniquity of us all. He's the man of sorrows. Who's that? Well, the Hebrew word makab means pain or suffering. Our modern Bible translations are split probably half and half, and their rendering of this phrase either as the man of suffering or the man of sorrows. I mean, that's something to split hairs over, isn't it? I mean, no leader would, would choose to be known or titled as the man of, of sorrows especially since he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, verse 2 says. It kind of goes against human nature, doesn't it? You know, we want to follow people who are, you know, kind of good looking. They they fit the part, the script. You know, they're people who seem like they have it all together. They're in charge. All throughout the book of Isaiah, there's this phrase that's also repeated It's the arm of the Lord. The arm of the Lord is what's going to deliver God's people. And it's this personification of God's, you know, strength. You just, you see this muscle-bound arm. That's what you imagine. It's God's strength. It's his ability to do what he says he's going to do. The arm of the Lord is mighty. And he will restore his people, all people, in fact, to himself. He's going to save the world. I wonder how, I wonder how he'll do that. I, I just don't know, but I bet it's going to be spectacular. You're not going to want to miss it. The one that God sends is obviously going to be a super impressive person. Well, according to Isaiah, it might not look like you'd expect. And, and by that I mean he, this person, this rescuer, might not look like you'd expect. Nothing, Isaiah says, and his appearance, that we should desire him. Verse 3, he was despised and rejected by others, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised, and we held him in low esteem. God, I don't get it. How does this work? You're going to save the world with a, with, a, with a reject? Imagine if Hollywood wrote this story. Who plays the part of God's hero here? The one to deliver all people of the earth. I mean, this is, you know, the next Marvel movie superstar, isn't it? A person who's forceful, athletic, smart, the kind of person who's charismatic magnetic, convinces others to follow them. But what if this hero is ugly, right? I mean, what would we do? We'd probably get rid of that hero and find someone else for the part. What Isaiah is doing here is trying to communicate that God's 
deliverer, God's chosen person, would be someone unexpected and that they would do the unexpected. There's a biblical scholar, John Oswald, he says this. The real issue here is not whether this person was good looking, but that the way in which he set about delivering his people was just as shocking and as off-putting as it would have been to have the ugliest man in a group chosen best looking. The real issue is not whether this person was good looking, but that the way in which he set about delivering his people was just as shocking and as off-putting as it would be to have the ugliest man in a group chosen best looking. It doesn't make sense. You can't do it that way, right? Isaiah says, you're going to reject God's plan because you don't like the way his deliverance looks. It just doesn't fit the script. We're all looking for a man of triumph when in fact God sends us a man of sorrows. You know, the, the thing that people, and myself included in this, often misunderstand about God is that we expect God to act or respond in God-like ways. You know, we have these particular ideas, uh, these kind of pre-packaged and conceived notions of how God and how the world is supposed to work. And we do that rather than keeping an open mind and paying attention to how he actually is at work. An example from my own life, um, almost 20 years ago, Corey and I moved to the state of Washington. And when we moved here, we were fresh out of grad school. We were coming from Chicago. We thought, oh man, this sounds like a fun adventure. We were 1,500 miles from the nearest family member. Not a big deal. This is going to be great. And so, you know, we landed in Bellingham actually first. And what a, what a fun place to, you know, to be newly married, and then child number one came along, and then child number two came along, and probably about child number two was when I started to say, hey, God, we've got these two really great kids here, but we're a long ways from family. And most normal people would go find a job closer to one of their families. But for pastors, we have this weird insistence, there's this whole God layer to it, where it's like, well, but you've kind of called me here, so I think I'm supposed to stay here. And so I had this prayer wrestling match with God. For, this went on for years, where I would just be like, God, what am I still doing here? I need to be closer to one of our families. Like, would you please help us to live near one of them? And so this would, this would kind of come up occasionally. I'd have these little, you know, like homesickness things. I want my kids to know their grandparents. God, come on, don't you want them to? They're great people. And nothing happened. Nothing happened. There were no doors. Nobody called me from, you know, either the Midwest or Southern California. Those are where our families are from. No one offered me jobs, invited me to come. Just nothing. Nothing happened. And so, like I said, many years went by. Five. And I had one of these prayer times, these sessions. And God kind of opened my eyes to the fact that in that time, we had purchased a home. Um, the home was on a, an alley that hadn't ever been paved. It's weird, I know. It was just like empty land. And so my parents would 
bring their RV from the Midwest, and they would park it there for like a month at a time every, every uh, summer. And then the weirdest thing happened to Bellingham. You know, it, it kept growing. And, you know, they always had these little puddle jumper flights where you could go to other airports. Well, they started a direct flight from Bellingham to guess where? San Diego. And so my mother-in-law would hop on a flight, and so she would come up and see her kids all the time. And the thought that occurred to me as I was saying, God, help us move closer to one of our families, was God was like, I did. You got a direct flight from San Diego. Your parents come out for a month at a time. Your kids spend more time with their grandparents than you did when they lived right down the road. And yet I had been looking and expecting God to answer that prayer my way. And man, was I surprised when I realized he had answered it in his way. Oh, how many times in my life have I had that experience, right? Many of us have. Many of us have. When we place our expectations on how God does his work, we often feel disappointed or we miss entirely what he's doing. That's exactly what happened to people living in ancient Israel 2,000 years ago. They were looking for a man of triumph. Instead, God sent them a man of sorrows. Even though the prophet Isaiah wrote hundreds of years before the birth of Christ, the followers of Jesus, like Peter, immediately connected the suffering servant in Isaiah, this man of sorrows, with Jesus. In 1 Peter 2, 24, Peter writes a group of Christians who are going through severe trials. He says this, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were like sheep going astray, but now you've returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. He's quoting from Isaiah 53. He's saying Jesus is the suffering servant of the Lord who delivered his people. And it's interesting. It's interesting because a person like Peter was raised in Roman-occupied Israel. They were all longing for the Messiah to be revealed. But they were also so convinced that God's Messiah would be like a Marvel movie hero, someone just too obvious to miss. But here's Jesus, a baby born to very poor people in the back stable of a backwater village inn. I mean, how would, how would this birth reshape the Roman Empire? In fact, Jesus isn't even the greatest preacher in his family. His cousin John was the one everyone knew in that day. Jesus would ask his cousin for his baptism. We're really supposed to believe Jesus is the one called to be the Savior of the world? You know, there's so many pieces to Jesus' story and his life that doesn't fit the script of greatness, especially the way he died. Crucifixion? That's reserved for criminals and traitors. I'm sorry, God. This isn't what we think of when we think of the arm of the Lord being revealed. And so the Apostle John frames Jesus' story in this really profound way. He says, He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, 
the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. As much as Jesus didn't look the part of Savior, how he did the job, how he delivered us is even more unexpected. Isaiah says, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought him peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. See, in order for us to be reconciled to God, atonement needed to be made. So Jesus offered himself as a sacrifice for our sin, pierced for our transgressions on the cross, crushed for our iniquities, the punishment that brought us peace was on him. And there's no doubt, when you look at the story of Jesus, there's no doubt that he suffered, especially physical pain. I mean, the brutality of crucifixion is unbelievable. But Jesus also suffered emotional agony. You know, it says that his heavenly father abandoned him as the sin of the world was laid upon him. God had to look away. Spiritual anguish Jesus suffered, bearing all the ugly, inhuman, horrific sins of you and me and the rest of the world on his shoulders. This all happened on the cross so that the punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, man of sorrows. And what makes this story less like a tragedy and more like how a Hallmark film would end, is that Jesus didn't say dead. The, remember, the reason we remember him even at all is because he rose from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus gave all of his suffering a new purpose. Sin, suffering, and death are no longer the end of the story for him, potentially for us. There's new life with Christ and his resurrection power that's available for all of us. And here's why that matters. You know, the birth of Jesus, the taking on of, of human flesh by God himself, it may seem unexpected, maybe even sacrilegious by some people, but to me it's proof of how deeply God cares for us that he's willing to enter our time and space and dwell among us. God redeemed the world through his own suffering. I suffer, you suffer, we all suffer, the world suffers. And incredibly, God doesn't sit far off and indifferent to this. He suffers too. In fact, he suffered once and for all so that we might truly live with him. And so this Christmas, when you're trying to cope with whatever it is that brings frustration or disappointment or sorrow, remember that you have a choice. You can face it all alone. You can choose to distract yourself or medicate yourself or escape from it, however as you do it in the past. Or perhaps when you're hurting this Christmas, you could turn to the man of sorrows. And here's what that looks like. Remember that he's with us. Jesus identifies with our pain. 
We can go to him in prayer. We can invite Christ into our moment. And we can dwell on scripture when we feel overwhelmed, when the hamster starts to run and things go round and round and the anxiety and whatever it is that we're suffering through goes up and up. We can dwell on scripture instead. God's word is full of encouragement and perspective for people who are in pain or facing trouble. Uh, Psalm 34, the Lord is near the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Philippians 4, the Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. 1 Peter 5, and after you have suffered a little while, the God of grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. There is a long list in scripture of verses like this. And these were not spoken in a vacuum. These are not just platitudes that God threw out there or Christians threw out there to, you know, inspire us. No, these were spoken by God into the lives of people who were going through suffering and pain, just like you and me, maybe because Christ gets us. And finally, God gives us one another. You know, the beauty of the church, God's people, is that we can lean on one another in times of need. There is a multitude of people who've gone through similar things in faith, leaning on Christ. And when it doesn't feel like we can go any further, you know, we can reach out for help. We can talk to people, to trusted people, friends, whoever it may be that God leads into our life and talk about that with them. You know, maybe that's something you could do this Christmas or maybe you could be that listening ear for someone else. Because Christmas is the day that we celebrate. God's love coming to earth in a tiny child. It's the day we celebrate his willingness to enter our human experience with all the ups and all the downs that it includes. It's the day that we celebrate, even in our pain, Christ is with us so that we could know his love, experience his healing, and find his deliverance and hope. Amen? Please join me in prayer. Lord, it's not bad if we just want to be happy. It might be bad if we're willing to, to find that happiness at all costs. And, you know, we make bad choices. We try and numb the pain, we try and escape it, we try and avoid it, uh, pretend it's not there. Help us to do something different this year. Help us to remember that you came to earth, you experienced pain and suffering similar to us, maybe not exactly the same, but you also experienced it on a way greater degree than we could ever imagine. And you did that to deliver us. Help us to remember. Help us to invite you in. Help us to notice the ways 
that you may be working to answer our prayers that we just maybe never expected. And most of all, Lord, help us not lose hope. Lord, you are with us. And you have redeemed this life and granted us a new future in you. We celebrate that. We worship you, Lord. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Man of sorrows. Amen.